It's almost embarrassing to admit in the Bible, but guess whose ancestry traces to Moab? Hmm. King David. Ruth is a Moabitess. The royal dynasty can be traced to a Moabitess? No descendant of Moab can be even in the congregation. And, and now you've got the most celebrated king. Granny is from Moab. Nonetheless, the sweet psalmist of Israel, Neil, David is Moabite in his descent. He builds a shrine to what the biblical writers call the abomination of the Moabites. In Jerusalem, builds a temple to Chemosh. So he's building a temple to Jehovah. Good job, Solomon. Nice. Thank you very much. And he's like, wait till you see the place I built for Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. Golden satyrs on these vines, pentars, the, the, the horse legs guys. Solomon was old. His wives had turned his hearts to strange gods. By adoring Astarte, which is Venus, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, Solomon had built a high place to Chemosh, the idol of Moab. Omri have Ahab. Remember, Ahab is the one that's married to Jezebel, who's gone down historically as the rottenest woman of all. In August of 1868, a Prussian minister, a missionary, Prussian, right? Frederick Augustus Klein is told by Zatam, hey, I've got something I want to show you. It's a treasure. It's the wonder of the region, Neil. No Frank has ever laid eyes on this. And Klein says, what is it? Welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Gnosis. And today my guest is Ross K. Nichols, who has a YouTube channel that you need to go subscribe to right now. The link's in the description. I'm showing it on the screen. Pause the video. This video ain't going nowhere. Go hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell as well. And on top of that, he also has a website called RossKNichols.com. And here's where you can find his greatest work of all, The Moses Scroll. This is one of my favorite books. We talked about this in an earlier video, and it's a really interesting discovery that he has written about in his book. So go and check out those links in the description. But today is going to be another discovery story that we're going to discuss, and it has to do with Moab, the place that's mentioned in the Bible. And as far as I know, this city is ancient. This goes back to the Bronze Age. You have inscriptions in Egypt by Ramses II mentioning Moab. And uh, it looks like this is the same place. I mean, where else? Who else would it be? It's the same region of the world and it's the same, same territory. So we're talking about an ancient city. And here's my guest right now. Welcome. How's hey, it going? Neil. Neil, look, man, I am so excited to be on your show today. Uh, every time I hear from you, it's only someone like you that would write me some bizarre late night message that says, hey, Ross, why aren't people talking about, and then you throw some ancient God across. I mean, who? <laughs> Sabathios. Yeah. yeah. You, 
sent me that the other day. Well, let me tell you something. I'm going to throw one back at your audience today, Neil. Today, I get to return that favor, and we're going to talk about a little bit about the God Chemosh. Now, I know you know this God. This God is particular to a region. You mentioned as you brought me in, I, I could hear you from the back of the studio. You're talking about the land of Moab, the land of Moab. You, When you and I went to Israel, I so wish that we wouldn't have had to split ways because you went to Egypt and I went to the ancient land of Ammon and Moab. I went to Jordan yeah. and uh, I was watching on Facebook. You're showing your, your audience stuff like you're in Egypt. And I was thinking, man, I wish I was with him, but I really wish you would have been with me because let me tell you, man, I was hiking in caves looking for treasure, all kind of all videos. Trust me. I was like, I wish I went there too. Hey, you know what we need to do? We need to bring your audience and my audience and go together. I'm going in this fall. I'm going to Egypt, Jordan, and Israel, uh, following the route of the literary route, let's say, because some people might not believe it ever happened, but at least according to the biblical literature, the children of Israel left Egypt, went through the desert, went into the ancient land of Moab and then crossed over into the land of Canaan. So I want to, I want to tell you, and you jump in anytime, man, but, but what I really want to talk about is probably, I would, I would say arguably the single greatest biblically oriented piece of archeology span ever, like like you could say, well, what about this? What about, okay, so there are some you might debate, but I'm telling you, in my opinion, that what we're going to talk about today is the single greatest archaeological discovery related to a biblical text. We're going to talk about the Moabite stone, Neil, uh, also known as the Mesha Stella, and that's where I want to kind of pick up the story. I I know your viewers are more knowledgeable than than most, but just kind of if if you don't mind, man, I'll just kind of hit a couple of high points like yeah. from the biblical text, kind of to orient people. Like so, like I lead tours, as you know, and a lot of people really want to go to Israel. I do too. I love it, but they never cross over the Jordan into Transjordan, where so much of the biblical narrative takes that's place. Sinai Desert. That's 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 where it's at. That's the original, you know, if you go to that desert region, as you mentioned in the Sinai or in the Transjordan region by Ammon and Moab east of the rift, let's say, man, you're you're in Bible territory. Let me let me hit a couple of high points. Yes, of course. Of course, you know that Balak, remember Balak in the book of Numbers, Balak hires Bilam, the guy from Talking Donkey fame. Numbers chapter 22 through 24, he hires uh, Balak, uh, Balak hires Balaam to come in and curse his enemies, Israel. So, so you got that piece, but you also have right after that in Numbers chapter 25, Israel uh, succumbs to the enticement of these Moabite gods and, and the women of Midian and Moab entice this, the children of Israel to go after their other gods and make offerings to their gods and so forth. But you, you also remember the positive aspects of this land. This is the final place. In other words, Moses 
the great lawgiver of the Pentateuch, never even crosses into the land of promise. He dies in the land of Moab. He's buried in the land of Moab. So this is very, very central to the biblical story in the Pentateuch. Uh, so Moses is buried there. And then you have Gad and uh, uh, Reuben and half-tribe of Manasseh settle in that area east of the Jordan Rift in, in Transjordan. Now, this land and its people really becomes the arch enemy of Israel throughout much of the biblical period. All of this, by the way, leads up to the story of the greatest discovery. So you have the biblical writers, Neil, are at a pain to really show that uh, Moab is just not worth anything. They're the enemy. So the story in Genesis 19, it's like it's rumors on the street. Hey, tell me about the ancestry of Moab. And Genesis 19 tells this really bad story about how Lot, remember Lot, the nephew of Abraham, uh, his daughters at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah get the old man drunk and they both um, sleep with their dad. And through those, um, through those unions, we have the birth, according to the Hebrew Bible, Genesis 19, of Ammon and Moab. So, so it really starts off on the wrong foot. You know, that, those are some really bad things to say about your neighbor. Whether it really happened that way or whether the writers are so, uh, so much trying to put out bad press on their neighbors, nonetheless, that's the way the biblical story records the beginnings of the people of Moab and Ammon. And then if we move forward in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, the writer of Deuteronomy, most often attributed to Moses, but the writer of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that no descendant of Moab will be allowed into the generation or into the tent, if you will, into the congregation of the children of Israel. And the reason this is according to the writer of Deuteronomy, is they didn't greet you well when you came out of Egypt. They didn't offer you bread, etc. Plus the horrible accounts mentioned in Numbers. You know, they entice them to false worship and that kind of thing. So they become the arch enemy. Remember now, if you're, if you're born from this union, if you have Moabite blood in you, you're not supposed to be allowed into the congregation of the children of Israel. So then as you work your way through, you get to 1 Samuel 14. There is, there is a list of Saul, the first king of Israel's uh, enemies. And top of the list is the Moabites. Wow. So this is, they're like, if you go, hey, Saul, who are your enemies? He'll say, I hate the Moabites. I mean, that's like first one he lists. And if you work on down, it's throughout the biblical story. But here's where it gets interesting. It's almost embarrassing to admit in the Bible, but guess whose ancestry traces to Moab? Hmm. King David. Think about this. Right. Ruth is a Moabitess. So it's, it's really sort of a shock. Like if, if you go, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the arch enemy of uh, Israel the, the royal dynasty can be traced to a Moabitess? 
But that's the story we get in Ruth. It's that little when, that little book book of Ruth that everyone forgets about. They do. They do. And it does say, yeah. What what it's his it's through his mother his father's side? Is his his through his maternal line. So Ruth marries into the family. She marries Boaz. You remember the yeah. The whole story is fascinating, but we have like seven references in the book of Ruth. As you said, it's a small book, but seven times it makes it clear that Ruth is a Moabitist. Now, this, this requires some explanation, Neil, as you can imagine. And why does, it, why, why does it require an explanation? Well, because we just learned in Deuteronomy that no descendant of Ruth or no descendant of Moab can be even in the congregation. And, and now you've got the most celebrated king, King the David. City, the city of David named after him. Granny, gran, up the line, Granny is from Moab. Now look, the rabbis and he's other the Messiah. He's the, mo, he's the anointed king. He's the Moshiach. That calls That's, him. It. That's it. He's the top man. You know, and, only, and only his blood can be the Messiah. Yep. So, you, so this you, is so important. This is not just yeah one one of our kings happened to be uh, half you know no 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 the king. Well, it, it's, the it, king. it's the man, the one who his heart. He's got a heart after God, and and so even though he has failings, which the Hebrew Bible records, you know, with Bathsheba and so forth, where he has Uriah killed. Nonetheless, the sweet psalmist of Israel, Neil David, is. Moabite in his descent. Now, there, there's an interesting story in 1 Samuel 22. I'll, by the way, if you can't tell, I love Moab. I love the land and people. Go ahead. Yeah. Before you get to that, I just want to, this is a really quick passage. Yep. Boaz, this is from the uh, Catholic edition. I like these editions because they're, they're on yeah. whatever. It says, Boaz went and took up a seat at the gate. And when he saw a close relative of whom he had spoken come along, he called, he called, come and sit beside me. And he did so. And yeah. then Boaz picked out 10 of the elders of the city and asked them to sit nearby. When they had done this, he said to the near relative, Naomi, who has come back from the Moabite plateau, is putting up a sail, the piece of the land that belonged to the kin kinsman Elimelech. Yep. I thought I would inform you, bidding you before these here present, including the elders of my people, to put in your claim, for if you wish to acquire it as next of kin, but if you do not wish to claim it, tell me so, so that I may be guided accordingly, for no one has a prior claim to yours, and mine is next. He answered, I will put my claim. Boaz continued, once you acquire the field from Naomi, you, may, you must all take also Ruth the Moabite. That's right. Widow of the late heir and raise up a family for the departed on his estate. Yep. And, and so you and you know this, Neil. Uh, one thing that's important there, it's it's really an ancient custom that's being uh, told to the reader in, in that passage in the book of Ruth. It's called the leveret marriage. So if if you're if you die and you haven't birthed a son through the, your previous marriage, then the brother or the next of kin is required to marry and produce offspring in the name of the father who died before he could have children. So that's what's going on here. He's saying, hey, look, I got this piece of property and I'm offering it 
But along with that comes the the woman that that is the former the widow of the former owner. You know, and so it's you're talking about a lot of responsibility that he's saying. You if you take it, you got but see, he's got an ulterior motive. He actually, according to the book of Ruth, he has become infatuated, I guess you could say. I mean, it doesn't say those exact words, but he's watching this girl. She's probably beautiful. She's out working in his fields and he sees her, he casts eyes on her and he really wants her, but he, he's got to do it the right way, Neil. He can't just like say, yeah, I got me a girl from Moab. He's got to play the cards right. That's what he's doing in the book of Ruth. So you get seven and ultimately he wins the game. He gets Ruth. And then through that union, as we read in the short book of Ruth, four chapters, he ultimately has uh, Obed is the, the, the name of, and then you go on down and then David. So you're only talking a couple of generations. Now, listen, I know there are people who, because they have what they consider a discrepancy, you, you can't, no descendant of Moab can be accepted into the congregation of Israel. So they try to really work some theological gymnastics to make it happen. But here's what we, what we really need to admit is that uh, the, the biblical writers, Neil, this must be authentic because it's embarrassing. You, you know, I'm, in other words, you, you, if you, if you really wanted to explain, but they couldn't, they couldn't ignore the fact that it was known that David traced back to Moabite origins. You see my point? So, in other right. words, you, you, if if it wasn't true, they would just not mention it. But That's, I was people, just going to mention that it's like, so the, whether people, when we talk about the historicity of Old Testament characters, you know. A lot of times when it's when it's past David, when we're going into Moses and Abraham, there's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of good reasons to think some of this stuff might not be as historical as as it's said in the text. But once we get into this King's era, I think it starts to get more historical. And for the, when we talk about David, there are scholars who think David might not existed. There are right. some really good scholars who think he did. And it's yep. and I I'm I'm on the my personal thought about this is like. When I read a passage like this, my thoughts are, what is the point of making that up, that he's from yeah. the Moabite? And then on the other side, I, I can, I'm can, i the type of person to say, okay, a lot of these legends, like the hitting hitting uh, the giant in the, in the forehead, like this is in like playing the harp, like looking like King Kinneris from the Cyprus. A lot of that stuff might be later legends attributed to him, but I think there's still a good argument that he existed historically just as a king. Yeah. What's the reason to doubt that? You know, well, I, you, you're exactly right. It's like the further back you go, historians, particularly in the minimalist camp, would say, you know, we really just don't have a lot of evidence. Now, we're, by the way, Neil, for your audience, we're going to talk about a piece of a proposal of a very essential piece of evidence towards this Davidic kingdom. So what many of the minimalists might say is sort of exactly what you said is, okay, there may be a Davidic king. There may be a David who was the, the head of what became the famous Davidic dynasty, but it wasn't as powerful as the biblical writers proposed. So like if you go to like Finkelstein and some of these guys, they're, they're going to say, 
Yeah, yeah, there's a Davidic kingdom, but it's uh, it's sort of a back. Jerusalem's a backwater. You yeah, know, it's a nothing. They'll say it's know. just Jerusalem and maybe two other cities connected to it. Yeah, yeah. So there are twelve tribes, and eh, I don't know about all that. Yeah, so they there is they believe most minimalist scholars uh, would would say if he existed, you know, he's just a uh, sort of a chieftain, like a tribal chieftain, and not some real powerful king who rules the nations as the bible might propose but but what's so interesting is is that as you mentioned like a lot of times when scholars get into archaeological excavations and stuff there seems to be like this barrier they don't really have a problem dating something say to the ninth century bce but when you start pushing into that 10th century bce people get a little bit nervous because then you're like now we're talking time of David Solomon, you know, and, and then earlier, even into Saul, it, it becomes a little bit more tenuous, a little bit more difficult to prove. So people are sort of hands off. But I, but I will tell you this, and we're going to get into this. It, it, I really want to talk about some of the evidences of a Davidic house Again, it still leaves open to debate how powerful that house was, but it, it sort of gives credence. Like you look at it and you go, oh, there's probably something there. But, but the biblical writers are very, very clear that this house of David, that the monarchy is really at war with a lot of its surrounding neighbors and the chief of which is Moab. Now, 1 Samuel 22 David actually sends his parents to stay in Moab. Again, another piece of embarrassing information that the right, it's, it must have some trace of historicity in my view, because otherwise you'd leave it out, right? So he sends his folks to stay uh, in Moab in his family, like his maternal, with his maternal family. And I think that's very striking. But then, Later, uh, when you get to 2 Samuel 8, even David fights against the Moabites. You know, it's really, but, but I'm just showing this struggle, this sort of a, uh, a textual uh, tension between Israel and the Moabites. Now, by the time you get to Solomon, Solomon's a ladies' man, right? He's got according to the text at least probably exaggerated but he has 700 wives 300 concubines he's a strategic lover like he he marries these women in neighboring countries for uh strategic purposes moabites ammonites so for instance in uh, first kings 11 it says that he actually get this he builds a shrine to what the biblical writers call the abomination of the Moabites. In Jerusalem, Neil, he, he builds a shrine for one of his old ladies, right? Because he wants to keep her happy and he's working on this uh, strategic alliance. He builds a temple to Chemosh in, in uh, Jerusalem. Now, this is the guy, according to the text, who builds the temple to Jehovah uh, 400 and some odd years after the Exodus, if we believe 1 Kings 6.1. But 
so he's building the temple to Jehovah. Good job, Solomon. Nice. Thank you very much. And he's like, wait till you see the place I built for Kamosh, the god of the Moabites. Right. And when they, mean, describe, when they describe Solomon's temple, if you read it in the Greek Septuagint, they describe it as, you know, having vines and grapes and satyrs, which is like goat, devil-looking creatures, golden satyrs on these vines. And um, the other animal they said that was in there was, they said eagles, serpents, and then there was um, kentars, the, the, the horse legs guys. I'm like and then and then you read in the Hebrew it, it it sort of says the same thing but with a different it says like goat man. Well, like, you know it's it's interesting and see this this this, line this, up. this is your field. I, I you know I one of the things that I will say is that there's a lot of Phoenician emphasis. You know, remember yeah. because he's got Hiram the king of Tyre is supplying who, the who, stuff who lived through yeah. date he was half of his career in, under David and his elderly career with Solomon, according to the text. Yeah. So he's this, he's this Phoenician trader, important ally up in the yep. North. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get in the ancient world, you get borrowings from these different uh, regional locations. And so I'm sure that when you look at the temple, you, you're looking at something that is the, uh, the greatest architecture of the day, and you, you couldn't help but get some Phoenician influence in this building. So the the point is that Solomon and, you know, he's engaging with these people of Moab. But what what begins to happen is after Solomon, in, in when Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. And you get the the 12 tribes are divided between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You have Judah is reigned by Rehavam, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and Jeroboam the first takes the northern 10 tribes. We, we often refer to them as the lost tribes of Israel because ultimately they're carried away by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. But, but here's the thing, the Northern Kingdom, Neil, really launches out against the surrounding neighbors. And Finkelstein, some of these other guys really show the power of this Northern Kingdom as the history of Israel progresses. When Solomon was old, his wives had turned his hearts to strange gods. Yeah, baby. And his heart was not entirely with Yahweh, his God as the heart of his father David had been, by adoring Astarte, which is Venus, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the idol of the Ammonites. Solomon yep. did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not follow him undeservedly as his father David had done. Solomon had built a high place to Kamash, the idol of Moab. There it is. And to Molech the idol of the Ammonites, and on the hill opposite of Jerusalem. He did the same thing for his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrifice to their gods. The Lord, therefore, became angry with Solomon. As and you would imagine, Neil. Hey, by the way, and you and I have been there together, so when it says the hill opposite Jerusalem... That's the so city of David, right? Well, it's actually it's on the Mount of Olives, so it's in prominent view... East of uh -huh. Jerusalem, 
you're you're talking about he builds a temple to the Moabite God, the abomination of the Moabites. And so this is like it's an affront to God. It's an affront to the God of the Hebrews. And that's what the writer is trying to tell us. This isn't just like a minor infraction. This isn't like, you know, some little, uh, you know, a white sin, like a this little is the bit. first three Ten Commandments completely ignored. That's exactly right. That's, that's bad. Exactly. I mean, that's like if you said, how can I make God as angry as possible? Let me start at the top of the list, Neil, and just work my way down. That's what Solomon did for someone. Again, there's a tension in the text. You have uh, Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived, but he sure didn't act like it sometimes. See, yeah. So, so this is the image that we get. But what happens, Neil, is once you get the division of the kingdoms, you have a list of kings that goes like this. You have Omri. Uh, you have Ahab. Remember, Ahab is the one that's married to Jezebel, who's gone down historically as the rottenest woman of all, you know, Jezebel. And so you've got uh, Ahab. And then when Ahab dies, his son, um, his son Ahaziah takes over, but it's a short lived reign. It's only like two years. And then Jehoram. So, so here's what happens, and this is going to bring us into this great biblical discovery. According to the Bible, you have Ahab dies, and then uh, once you get to Ahaziah, this two-year reign, this, from Omri's time particularly, Moab has been subjugated by the northern kingdom, and they're demanding just extreme tribute to be paid. And, and you study the ancient world, you know all about this tribute being demanded by a powerful ruling nation. So what's happening is uh, Mesha is the king of Moab at the time, and he's watching events. Like he's looking over into Israel and he says, you know, I'm tired of paying this money. And since Omri is dead, Ahav, Ahab died. Ahaziah seems to be kind of rocked off his heels, taking over the kingdom. You know, what would be a good thing for me to do is to quit paying my bills. So he decides, Mesha, according to the biblical text, decides he's not paying. He's not going to pay this, this fee anymore. So I wanted to look at a couple of texts. If you look at, I got something real quick that I want to show. Yeah, yeah, jump in. So, Second Chronicles, right? We're talking about King Solomon and his time and all that. Yeah. Sure enough, you can look at Second uh, Chronicles eleven fifteen talks about for the Levites left their pasture lands and left the possessions went to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests of the Lord. And Jeroboam appointed his own priests for the high places of the goat demons. In the, so this is not even just Solomon either. Even later on, and now goat de- that's goat demon. That's the Hebrew translation. If you go to the Greek, it's just straight up satyr. Like right yeah. here, I'll show you, where it has the word, uh, let's see, satyr right here, see? Yeah. The, the, this temple, these temple satyrs were very offensive to the Yahweh followers. But like, you, like Solomon and Jeroboam, 
they're still kind of rocking this old way of doing things and sort of, you know, whatever. They're just satyrs. Who cares? Like, I love this stuff because it brings. Oh, I, I know, I know, it's right up your alley, and, and it, it makes me think it's more historical than people try to give it credit for. Because why would they ever want to admit this? That's it, and see, that's the thing. You you nailed it. What happens is the biblical text. One thing about it that the biblical text doesn't do is no one can pick up the Hebrew Bible. Some people refer to the as the Old Testament. No one can pick up the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible and read it and get this idea that uh, that the people were absolutely following a pure religion. I mean, it's corrupt from the beginning. The monarchy is some of the worst stuff uh, in the biblical writings. It talks, you know, over and over. You read just a few moments ago that uh, Solomon didn't follow the ways of God as his father had done. And that becomes a normal refrain, a regular refrain in the writing of the of Kings and Chronicles, particularly Kings. Chronicles, by the way, does sort of a whitewashing, you know, and, and it's it seems to be the more official word from the administration is the way I tell in my classes, you know, because I'm working through a lot of the monarchy right now. I'm, I'm currently wrapping up a series on the, the world and words of Jeremiah. But Kings is kind of tells it like it is. You know, some people uh, propose that the original version of Kings, you know, if you could trace it back, uh, was originally records from Jeremiah. And, and so you get this, but you do get this tension. Now, you, you, so what you're pointing out is that it becomes corrupt. The cult, if you will, uh, really gets off the rail, at least in terms of a pure monotheistic, uh, anti-idolatrous type, you know, religion. And it becomes corrupted and it stays off and on, you know, because you get a few examples of uh, reforms like under Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, where they try to rid the land of all this. But it look, it's got a life of its own. It keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. Yeah, and you can find those Asherah trees. And, I mean, oh, all, yeah. you know, that, and, that, and yeah. the Asherah, that's the wife. That's the wife of Yahweh in some of these older texts that predate some of these other, you know. Yeah, you you get you get one thing is certain and and consistent is that there are quite often traces of just bad religion, religion <laughs> going bad. I mean, yeah. really. Now, so what happens as you go through these kings? You know, you start ticking them off. This guy dies. This guy dies. When you get down to the point where Mesha thinks it's time to make his move, I'm going to read two short texts. Second Kings chapter one. This is the way it starts off, Neil. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. And then it gets into this long couple of chapters. And then I want to go down to chapter three, Second Kings three, and we're coming up on the greatest archaeological discovery. So in Second Kings chapter three, verse four and five says this. Now King Mesha of Moab was a sheep breeder. Now, this is the way I would describe my enemy. He's just a sheep farmer, for God's sake. You're telling me the king of a, a neighboring land is just a sheep breeder. That's what the Hebrew Bible wants you to believe. Okay, here we go. And he used to pay as tribute to the king of Israel a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, 
the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So here's what I think happened based on what we know. He sees that the, the kingdom of Israel, Neil, is sort of rocked back on its heels. You know, the, the king just died. You got a new king in. They're dealing with, you know, local problems. And he's just thinking, I'll get away with it. I'm not going to pay it. Well, he misunderestimated because after uh, Ahab died, his son Ahaziah takes over. And then next on the list is Jehoram. Jehoram recognizes immediately. He's like, hey, now, by the way, I'm paraphrasing the story in 2 Kings 3. So your viewers can go read the full text of it. But, but here's what he says. He says, uh, uh, Jehoram says, you know, I'm not going to let him get away with this. Mesha is going to pay me my tribute. So what does he do? He joins up with the king of Judah, who at the time was Jehoshaphat. He tells Jehoshaphat, hey, I want you to join me and I want you to, let's go get the king of Edom. So you got three kings joined together. Judah's king, Israel's king, and the king of Edom, and they plan to swoop around Neil, and they're going to they're gonna conquer Mesha, right? So they it tells us the story. So they're they're preparing, they're going south. If you look at a map, you if you picture the Dead Sea and you go south of the Dead Sea, uh, from Jerusalem, you go south, go south, go south. Their idea is that they're going to come up from the south on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and they're going to attack Mesha and force him into subjugation. Hmm. Now, on their way, they get a little concerned, Neil, and what they're concerned about is they're afraid they're going to die of thirst before they, you know, because you've been to the Dead Sea with me. Yep. That region is pretty dry. So they think they're going to die of thirst before they can complete the troops. They've got massive troops. They've got animals. They got. And so Jehoshaphat decides we've got to involve God in this. You know, you, you'd think they would have thought about this a little earlier, but they're running low on water. So Jehoshaphat says, call the prophets. Well, guess who they call? Elisha. Everybody knows Elisha. So Elisha does come. But here's what he's, he's got a problem, Neil. He's, a, he's kind of a hermit type. That's kind of anti, he's a rebellious. Yeah. The establishment kind of guy. Yeah. And particularly he, he's not fond of the Kings of the North. Right. So Jehoshaphat, he's okay. Jehoshaphat's not so bad, but he's talking that you want me, Elisha, the one who took over after Elijah, Right. I'm the mover and shaker of the day. I'm the prophet of God. He's got you the power. I got the power. We could right. sing that song. I got the power. So he wants to take out. You want me, Elisha, to be involved with Jehoram? With that guy? So ultimately, Jehoshaphat convinces him to join up and bring in, bring God into this adventure. So Elisha tells him, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. The water's not going to be a problem. The wadis, you remember all the dry wadis that run through that region? He, he says they're going to be filled with water. You're going to be fine. Uh, you're going to ultimately go in and conquer Mesha, and you're going to take the land. And it gives them this real positive report. Now, 
So here's what happens. The next day, I mean, rains come. Sure enough, everything, just like Elisha promised, is starting to happen, Neil. Tick it off, tick it off. Prophet of God gives them a straight report. Meanwhile, the Moabites wake up the next morning and realize they've got the attack coming from the south. So they Mesha turns his attention on the Edomites. Now, I'm thinking, Neil, that based on what I know from the, the time frame and so forth, Edom, Edom, let me say it, Edom is the weaker branch of this tri, you know, this three-pronged attack. But they, they're not even successful there. When they, when they wake up, one thing that they see, the water that God, according to the text, brought down, said it looked like blood. Now, I'm fixing a, this is pretty cool. I'm going to tell you something that was just in the news. The water looks like blood, and the Moabites think, hey, these three kings must have gotten a battle and filled the land with blood. They died off. And so they kind of let their guard down, and that's what opened up the door for the attack. Now, let me tell you this. We've got to pull this in, uh, Neil. What happened in 2021, in September, I was reading the news, and in the Jerusalem Post, there was an article about the water east of the Dead Sea turned blood red. It happens. It actually happens in the north in, in, uh, in Lebanon. The, it's called the Adonis River. It's in, Babylon, it's in Lebanon. And every, it's actually a yearly event. Every yep. year during the springtime, when, when rain starts to come after winter, there's all this um, red rock that's like sm it's like oily red rock. And yeah. the rain, it builds up during the winter. So then when the rain hits in the spring, it pushes it down into the river. The river turns red every year. And they used to celebrate this as the blood of Adonis in the spring. Ah, I got you. I so got this, you. this happens well, in nature. But go ahead. Well, let me, let me tell you this. So even though it's a phenomenon in the north, in the south, it's not so much. Because right. remember... Of course, the biblical writers, if this were a seasonal thing, they wouldn't record it because anybody reading it would go, yeah, well, that happens every year. Why did that fool mess you? It rarely, rarely happens. Right. But what's so interesting about this is, is that it does actually happen. And, and when it happens, it happened in 2021. Can you can you hear that out there? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's not myself. that big of a deal. It's fine. Okay, cool. All right. So. So September of 2021, now I'm knee deep in my research for the Moses scroll, and I'm also talking about the Mesha Stella and all. When I read this report in the Jerusalem Post, I was like, oh my God. So I started looking into, is it a regular occurrence? It's not so much in the South. Rarely does it happen, but what it did when it did happen, I said, I bet. Now you look at photographs, Neil, that's what it looks like. It looks like the water is, it's sort of a dark, deep purple, red, crimson kind of. So that's what happened. It was most likely. And by the way, when this event happened in September of 2021, the local scientific community really got involved and they said, well, you know, there's a certain algae, there's this, the, the uh, environment and the circumstances situation was just perfect. This happened. So anyway, but it, it's kind of cool. So anyway, when they see this blood, they think that these kings have killed each other. They let their guard down. The three groups 
the Edomites, the Israelites, and the people of Judah attack, and they begin to, to really kick Mesha's tail. So what does Mesha do? Mesha, in an act of desperation, now this is the Hebrew Bible's account, right? The uh, biblical account says that in desperation, he sacrificed his firstborn son on a wall. And once that happened, listen to this. That This is, a, again, the biblical account. Chapter 3, 2 Kings 27. Here's what it says. So he took, well, let me back up to 26. Seeing that the battle was going against him. This is Mesha. The king of Moab led an attempt of 700 swordsmen to break a way through to the king of Edom, but they failed. So he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him up on the wall as a burnt offering. A great wrath came upon Israel, so they withdrew from him and went back to their own land. Hmm. What is that saying? Now, remember, the prophet said, you're going to win. But this weird little part of the story seems to be historical, Neil, because it's all of a sudden out of nowhere, it says great wrath came upon Israel and they withdrew. That doesn't sound like a win to me, right? Something else is happening here. But here's the deal. So for 2,700 years, that was the only record of this battle that we had. I mean, that's the story and we're sticking to it. It's all we knew. But then, then in August of 1868, a Prussian minister, a missionary, Prussian, right? 18, 1868, the 19th of August. Now, this guy, his name is Frederick Augustus Klein. He's not only a Prussian minister, but he's a missionary and a part, a member of the uh, Church Missionary Society of Jerusalem. He takes a, a pleasure trip east of the Jordan. Now, I know you know the history, but in the 19th century, Neil, you, there weren't a lot of Westerners going to, this is like the wild, wild. The Ottoman, the Ottoman territory, right? That's right. That's right. The Ottomans are, but. But the, even the Ottomans were, they hadn't even conquered this land. It was called, I call it the wild, wild east. You've heard of the wild, wild west in the U.S. Yeah. But the wild, wild east was, if you cross that line, Neil, if you cross the rift and you go east into Jordan, you better pay to have guards. You better have somebody hired to help you because you're going to end up getting uh, kidnapped or harassed or, or killed even. The Ottomans at this time were trying to subjugate the, the Bedouin. Look, the Bedouin, I'm, I'm looking at a map here. I keep it out all the time. Um, Evelyn Vandersteen is one of my main sources for life east of the Jordan in the 19th century. And she talks about how the Ottomans under the Pasha, the Wali of Damascus, He's trying to tame this area because he, he wants he wants it to be civilized. But the Bedouin are like, this is our land. We've lived here from time immemorial. Who are you? To right. tell? The, the Wally wants to tax them 
He wants them to conscript them to military service. He wants to pay them to pay taxes. And they're like, we're living in tents, brother. This is yeah. our land. Get out of here. So they're always at war. Well, if you look at the, if you look at, like, I had, this is perfect right here that I had this. Um, All right. If you look at some of these maps of, like, the geopolitical situation of the time, uh, Prussia is sort of more on the, on the side of the Ottomans than they are with the Russians. So they're surrounded by enemies, but they ally with these Muslims for the sake of that. There are Christian nations in this time period that are aligned with the Ottomans. Yep. And that, and that, so, that, that became a part a thing because you want power. You don't, it's not about ideology anymore. You want power at this time. You know what I mean? And the Ottomans, the Ottomans control this whole area, right? So now at the same time, there's a lot going on in the world at the time, but the Ottomans are ruling this area, but they, they have yet to really subjugate this land east right. of the Jordan. So, so this is the environment. So you just didn't, I mean, you, you had, there was, there were a few families of Bedouin, a uh, few Arab families that you could hire. In fact, one is the Arakat family. And you, you know, from reading my book that this guy, the, uh, the Sheik of Abu Dis, uh, Arakat, he's one of the guys that you could hire to bring you safely if you wanted to go. But look, there weren't many Westerners that made this trek. You just didn't do it. Frederick Augustus Klein is on sort of a pleasure trip east of the Jordan. He's hired one of these guards, uh, someone who could protect him. And this particular guard is a, a man by the name of Zatam. He's son of Fendi al-Faiz, who happens to be the son of the sheik of a major tribe of Bedouins. So you're, you go with Zatam. You know, he's got the connections. Like if, if someone was going to mess with you, you could say, look, I'm just telling you, I'm with Zatam. You know, his dad, Fendi Al-Faiz. And then they would say, oh, okay. You know, so he's, he's there. And on August the 19th, they arrive at a Bedouin camp. And as they settle in, he's told by Zatam, Frederick Augustus Klein is told by Zatam, Hey, I've got something I want to show you. It's a treasure. It's the wonder of the region, Neil. It, no, no Frank. Yeah, that's what they called all Westerners. No Frank has ever laid eyes on this. And Klein says, what is it? He goes, well, it's this inscribed stone made of basalt. We don't know what it says. It's written in ancient characters. But no one else has ever seen this uh, other than, you know, the locals. So he goes, okay, where is it at? He said, it's at a place, right, Debon. Now, Debon is an ancient site. So this is 1868. It's a tell. Wow. You know, a tell is, as your viewers may or may not know. Yeah, it's, it's a built up area because it's sand has accumulated. Actually, I have, I have a good image of one right here. I have, good, I have, I have good. it loaded up. It's this. This is like a tell right here, right? There you go. There you go. Yeah. And so you can see the different levels. And so, but on the surface, this uh, Zatan tells him on the surface, this stone is lying there. So he goes and he goes to look at it. When he gets there, um, it's sort of toward the evening. And sure enough, it's a black basalt. It's rounded. Now get this, Neil, you're going to, you, I, 
this is something you need to know. It's rounded on the top and the bottom. It's about uh, three foot, 10 inches tall, little over, uh, it's about two feet wide and about 14 and a half inches thick, rounded on top and bottom. It's got 34 lines of text. He doesn't know what language it's in, but he draws a, a chart of it. This chart, which we'll show, this is the chart that he actually drew. He sketched this. Now, I have this photograph because I went to the Palestine Exploration Fund and the director there at the PEF is Felicity Cobbing. And Felicity Cobbing allowed me to take a photograph of this sketch. So I don't know if it's been shown, you know, on a, a video like we're doing now. I mean, this is a gorgeous, you'll see, see that? So, so this is the reason it's important to show this is because if anyone thinks they know something about the Moabite stone, what does it look like on the bottom every time you see it? It's squared off. So that's, that's when it was found? Uh, that's it. Yeah, this is August 19th, 1868. This wow. is the sketch. Now, what now, did they? Well, yeah, okay, go, go ahead. ahead. Continue, continue. I'll ask my yeah. question. So now, August, uh, Frederick Klein, he, he sees it in the evening, but he's got to go back to Jerusalem the next day. So he quickly, remember, he doesn't know the language, Neil. So he just writes, he draws, he looks at the, the thing before him, and he, he uh, replicates as best he can in his sketchbook what some of these characters look like. And then he counted the lines. Thank goodness. He measured the thing. He counted the, he said there are 34 lines. They're about an inch and a quarter a piece. He, he did have four or five people with him, Arabs. So he asked them to flip this so that they could look at the backside and see if there was any writing. There wasn't. It was smooth on the back. The only writing was on the top. He did mention that the first three or four lines were a little bit damaged from weather, but he said otherwise it was perfect. It's perfect in, in situ. This is where it was found, right? So he returns to Jerusalem the next day. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he goes to the Prussian consul, uh, a, a man by the name of uh, Peterman. Herr Peterman is the Prussian consul. And he tells him, Man, look, this is what I found in the across there. You, you have to see this. I made this sketch. What, what alphabet is this? Now, Peterman happens to be a scholar. You know, he's into archaeology and, and uh, knows quite a bit. So, uh, so he looks at this thing and he immediately recognizes that it's Phoenician characters. Oh, right. Wow. So he begins to look at, and he can tell, he needs to spend more, he needs to see this thing up close. For anyone who wants to know what Phoenician characters looks like. Oh, yeah. A good way to think about this is the way, we, the way you compare Latin and English. They use the same alphabet, but they have different words and they speak different language. But the alphabet is almost identical if not is identical so phoenician would have been the alphabet that, that the hebrews would have used to write their language in, even though the language is different 
Yeah, and and one thing that's cool about that is, uh, you know, this this particular drawing shows some of that, and almost any chart, like you, I know you've studied ancient languages, and so almost any chart shows that Phoenician, these Phoenician characters, these letter forms are sort of the basis, like you said, for a lot of uh, alphabets that came later. Now, the other thing that's interesting is, so so when he goes to Peterman, Peterman recognizes immediately, oh man, you're, you're telling me this is, there are 34 lines of text, and he said, yeah, and every so often, I suppose, in between words, there are uh, word dividers, so like dots in the, the on the inscription itself so he gets all excited and ultimately what so what happens is peterman writes immediately to the prussian government and he said i need some money We're, we need to buy this now here's the other dynamic going on in the holy land neil you've got every people are beginning to transportation means are getting better there are people coming from the u.s on steamships uh europeans are coming to the holy land with the as we say the bible in one hand a spade in the other and they're looking for and trying to uncover archaeological proof of the bible wow. so the prussians see this as an opportunity to kind of take a jump up you know think about it man if you could acquire this ancient relic and it turns out to be something like it actually did and you could get it for your museum in Berlin, you're leading the world. Yeah. You, you, all of a sudden you're up here where England and all these others are down here. So he makes a really big effort. So they, and, and by the way, the story in all detail is in my book. It, it's a fascinating story. So there, there's this uh, a race to try to acquire it. But here's what I find interesting. Initially, Neil, the other nations were very gentlemanlike, like the English with Charles Warren. Everybody knows Warren. You've got Warren. You've got Dr. Barclay. The English in particular is saying, you know, as much as we'd like to take these rumors we're hearing in the streets and, and move forward and try to acquire this for ourselves, we're going to stay back and let the Prussians, they're the ones, they're working the deal. So for a while that that goes on, but it, it drags on, on and on. And I won't get, go into all the details, but put it this way. A year into this, Neil, the Prussians still hadn't acquired it. And what's happened is now you've got different tribes of Bedouin. Guess what they now know? Hmm. These Franks recognize that this is valuable. There can be some money made out of this. Well, the Prussians are getting frustrated. So they call, they decide that they're going to get the Wali of Damascus, the Ottoman ruler, to write, issue a firman, putting his foot down. Because the Westerners think that the Ottoman rulership has the Bedouin subjugated, but they don't. So the Wali says, hey, you guys, Bedouin, y'all better give those people the thing that they're trying to get. And you know what they, well, I'm not going to say it because they probably said a bad word, but they, they decided we're not going to get, in fact, not only are we not going to give this thing up, guess what they did? They built, they build a fire. This is the true story, man. 
they build a fire and they put on top of the coals the Moabite stone. And they heat it until it's glowing and simultaneously they cast rocks on it and they throw water on it and the combination of the rocks and the cold water shattered the Moabite stone into <laughs> pieces and pieces. Now, so how do we know what it says? The only reason we know is because in the interim between the, the Bedouin getting mad and breaking it, a few other people had uh, one, one guy by the name of Claremont Gonneau, about a year into this, he's tired of waiting on the Prussians. So he hires an intermediary. He hires a, uh, an Arab by the name of Yaakov Karavaka, and they send a delegation with squeeze paper. You know what squeeze, where you, you take, sort of like paper mache, you take this heavy paper and you wet it and you put it on a lapidary, an inscription, you push it, like push, 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 so that the, uh, the material goes into the inscription. And when it dries, Neil, then you peel it off and you've got a reverse of that inscription. So before the Bedouin destroyed it, Yaakov Karavaka is, uh, he, he makes a squeeze but while he's making the squeeze, it's not quite dry. That word gets out. You got somebody down there right now at the stone. So different Bedouin tribes show up and a fight erupts. Wow. And Caravaca actually gets stabbed in the leg with a spear, but he's able to pull that rips into seven pieces, the squeeze paper. It, but he gets on and he gets on a horse and he makes it out with his life and a damaged not so great squeeze. So he gets back to Jerusalem. He hands this over to the Frenchman named Monsieur Charles Clermont Gano. He's the bad guy in my book, if you remember. Clermont Gano uh, is really the one, because of this fight, they suggest, some of the contemporary writers suggest that this is what led to the Bedouin's last straw. They said, that's it. I mean, nobody can have it. So they blew it up. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the race is still on. They're trying to get all the pieces. And ultimately, uh, between the bad squeeze, two big chunks. We'll, let's pull up a, a photograph here, Neil, of, of what people, uh, there it is. That's what we most often see when you look at the Moabite stone. You see how it's got the different shapes and, and you, it looks like a Frankenstein kind of deal. It's got pieces that are put together. You see the two big pieces on the screen. Those two major pieces are actually authentic. And you see there are a few others in that. Yep. Now, the rest of that, is made by Claremont Gano. A mm. lot of people don't know this. And see how it's square on the bottom? See, that's that's the reconstruction later. So ultimately what happens is the Prussians are, are really messed over. Claremont Gano swoops in. He's got more money. He gets the backing. 
uh, and, and he is not really a gentleman in this case. In fact, uh, this, is a, this is a book. I'll just hold it up. You ever get a really good bargain online? Oh, Look wow. This. this is 1871. I've got a plastic wrapper on it because it's fallen apart. This is Dr. Ginsburg's edition of the Moabite Stone. I was looking for a copy of the book and I thought I'd just get a reprint and I found for $8 on eBay and it said 1871. I ordered it, Neil, when this came in and I realized it was an original. Anyway, so I read this. I, I look at it just like it's, you know, but in this book. So sold it online for eight bucks. Eight bucks, brother. Sometimes you can get a bargain. And, and in this text, by the way, I put all this in, in my book, The Moses Scroll, but he, he says some pretty ugly things about uh, Gamo, Gano. He, he talks about how he was uh, a, a savant, but he was much more, he had much more, um, I forget the way he put it, something like uh, much more initiative than sense. He ultimately caused it to be destroyed. So, what we've got though is that it was reconstructed and by 1870 this is real quick work i got to give it to gano by january of 1870 he's already published the transcript meaning he's looking at the the items that he has the squeeze there was a transcription that Salim Al-Khari made of seven lines. And, and he's basically published, he was the first one out the gate to publish a transcription and a translation of it. So I know your audience is like, okay, okay, what does it say? Right. All right. So the Mesha Stella, as this basalt object came to be known, tells a story. It is a Stella, it's a celebratory monument by Mesha, the king of Moab. It dates, get this, it dates to the 9th century BCE. It's written in Phoenician characters. Again, 34 lines of text. And it basically tells the same story, Neil, as we read in second kings three this is what makes it so remarkable because uh first of all let me just say there are not many occurrences in antiquity outside of the bible which mention the people of israel the ones that we know of are few and debated right i know you probably covered some of these on your shows with other guests i was just talking about this yesterday and we were saying that or two days ago, the the Stella, the Egyptian, which which is the one, the one that mentions is supposedly mentions Israel before this one, which is in the twelfth, thirteenth century. The Merneptah, Merneptah. That yeah. one, I agree with the skeptic scholars. There's a lot of them. I, I looked it up. There was four of them I mentioned the other day, and I found there's like ten more. They think it's Jezreel because it'd be the same exact phonetic. It'd be, it'd be the same exact thing and the reason why they think that is because the the this uh this pharaoh is mentioning cities and he's not mentioning nations he's mentioning cities and then all of a sudden he mentions israel and then he mentions more cities yeah. so it's like 
And the region that all these cities are in, we know Jezreel existed in that time. So it's like probably Jezreel. This might be the first time this Meshesteli might be the first time Israel is mentioned in any text. It it very well could. And to your point, Neil, you know, in, in the book of Hosea in the Hebrew Bible, which is directed to the northern kingdom, Jezreel, as we say it in English, the anglicized version, uh, is a is sort of a wordplay of that northern kingdom, which right. which most of the the minimalist scholars would say, no, we think that there is an Israel, but it's the northern kingdom, and they're the dominant force. The kingdom of Judah is this backwater or whatever. So you know, it could be. But Thank you bring your example is one of the examples I'm talking about where a lot of scholars would say, look, I know the fundamentalist, the apologist really wants to find evidence of the biblical uh, text in archaeology, etc. They're debated and they're few. But let me tell you about as far as the Moabite Stella, the, the Mesha Stella, the Moabite stone, it is, let's say this, it is the most accepted. Now, it doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't mean that some don't think it's authentic. I mean, there have been arguments all along from the discovery point, which suggested that it was a forgery. There are recent suggestions by scholars you can find now. But, but, but when the, I say, date of it, the date of it makes it believable because there's no reason not to think Israel was already in existence. That's in- right. That's right. And and again, it's a. The, the kings that are mentioned in this are northern kings. Romri, Omri, as we say in English, you know, it's, like, it's, Isra- it's Israel, it's Israel, it's north, it's north. And that's the big enemy. So what's so fascinating about this is not only is the Moabite Stella the most accepted, and, and here's where that happened, 1945, the dean of archaeology, right, if, if you talk about who is the man in 1945, it's W.F. Albright. Albright is still, you know, considered one of the greatest of all time. Once Albright put his stamp of approval and said that is authentic, case closed, baby. Now, people who argue it today that it might not be, they have to argue against Albright and some of these others. But so in the Stella... Uh, this is not just a few lines. We're talking 34 lines, and it basically tells the same story as 2 Kings chapter 3. Not only does it tell the very similar story, but uh, the name Jehovah actually appears on this Stella uh, in line 18. So if people want to go find line 18, we can show them the ancient name of the Hebrew God, not an abbreviated form. You know, a lot of people sometimes in antiquity, we find, um, you know, the the three lettered name of God, yod Hey vav But if you look at line uh, 18, you'll see yod Hey vav Hey in paleo characters. So oh. this this particular text is really interesting. Not only does it have God's name, but it also has 14 other place names that we know from the biblical account. There you go. Yep. And uh, I, don't, I don't know why they lengthen it like that. Why don't they just put Yodhi Vavi here? You know, but whatever. Well, <laughs> yeah, a lot of the translations that we see today go back to the 19th century, particularly in German schools. That's why you and, get the Jehovah. 
Yeah, and it's yeah. it's uh, it's fairly common in in academic European German sources to use Jehovah, but and it goes you know think about uh, Bellhausen and the the if you talk about the documentary hypothesis the J version of the Pentateuch is the Jehovistic, you know because of the J. Okay, so anyway, all of these correlations suggest that this is what happened. Now let me just say this. We're gonna put. We ought to. We ought to show the actual. I know you just popped it up on the screen. That the but people can read the story, and see eighteen correlations between the Meshestella and the biblical account in Second Kings chapter three. Oh, by the way, there's your Yodhi Vavhi in Phoenician right there. Yeah, there it is. There it is. Yep. See, yeah. I, know, I know my Phoenician. I know it. I know you do. I, look, I've been in the Salom tunnel with you and watched the reading of the text. So, so, but, so this is a fascinating text. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So if you look at coming out of the 19th century, transcriptions were published. There were like seven major ones. Gano, Ginsberg, uh, Schlotman in Germany. A lot of these kind of hit the press. It's the greatest archaeological discovery of the day, so it's going to make the news. Well, here's what happens. So in night, let me bring us into the 20th century. Like this isn't over. So in 1994, Neil, uh, a brilliant scholar by the name of Lemaire, Andre Lemaire, he's an epigrapher. He's, you know, he's the man. On the if you ask anybody, this guy knows this stuff. He's one of the top guys in his field. He proposed that line 31 of the Meshastella actually had the Hebrew Beit David, the house of David. Now, he reconstructed this because if you spell out Beit David in Hebrew, it's the letter Beit, Tav, Dalit, uh, Vav, Tav, right? Yeah, yeah. It, and sometimes you see that in the uh, Arabic, it'll be Daoud, Daoud. Yeah, they yeah. use that vowel for the Vav, which is interesting. Yeah. So, reading, yeah. so what, but this, you can't, it's like people that countered the argument said, okay, I see your bait and I see the Vav and the Dalit, but I don't see those two center letters. So that was in 1994, but a lot of people did support his reading and said, I, I see where you're coming. Maybe this does talk about the house of David. Now, if that's the case, it enters into a field of other controversies like the discovery at Tel Dan in the North, which some have proposed also mention the house of David, which goes to our point earlier is the Davidic dynasty mentioned or is it not in antiquity? Well, these are two debated readings, this being one of them. Okay, so that's in 1994. What's the other translation that they think that it is other than David? Do they, do they say that or no? It, here they don't. They, they, just, they just show that there's a gap and they just show the Hebrew transcription. And as far as I know, they don't even bother to, to give a translation here. Uh, in fact, I was looking earlier before our our call just to see if I could see what's the latest, greatest. So right. it's not like people are, in my view, at least as far as I know, they're not saying, no, it doesn't say that. It says this. They're just saying, oh, we don't know what it says there. We don't have enough that, letters. That's interesting. Away. That means like they're 
if they're going to refute that it's David, you better have at least a better option. Well, other than, other, other than that, what is it then? Well, I'll tell you, it, there, it's a fun debate, and I can go through this pretty quickly. So, 96, now, I mean 94. Now, in 2022, uh, Lemaire comes back again with a scholar he co-writes with named Jean-Philippe uh, Delorme. And these two scholars have new photographs. So in Barr, in the winter 2022 edition, they come out with these new photographs and they say, now look. And their proposal is the same, Neil. They say, look here, we said it said the House of David and here's better photographs which prove our point. And, and so a lot of the world said, wow, okay. I, I'm seeing, I, I give you, it does look a little bit closer. But just recently, this is why I wanted, when you asked me what we wanted to talk about, I said, we got to, let's hammer this home because this is late breaking, Neil. This isn't, I, I know we've been talking about the 19th century, but this is now they're debating this. Yeah. It's, it's like, stay tuned. The, the jury's still out. So here you go. Spring of 2023 edition of bar magazine this is hot off the press there's an article called set in stone question mark another look at the mesha stella by two scholars one of which i actually know and i have the greatest respect for his name is uh, matthew rochelle and he and andrew burlingame wrote this article and they counter they say it doesn't say Beit David. All right. Now, this you're if you haven't read this article, in fact, before we talked about uh, making a show on this, the main reason I wanted to get in touch with you the other day is because I know you love the Paleo Hebrew. And oh, yeah. I was going to say, check this article out because here's what he says. This is written in such a way that anyone who even doesn't know paleo could get into the argument because he says uh, it really involves. And do you know how to look for the letter X? Can you find a triangle? How about a dot? Yeah, the is the is the D, is the triangle. And then, yep. and then I, I, I know the whole alphabet in Phoenicia. So so but I'm saying for your viewers who don't. If they can, if I said, do you know what an X looks like in English? And they could say, yeah. Do you know what okay. a, do you know what a triangle looks like? Yeah. Do you know what a dot looks like? Then you can do this game too. Yeah. I can so, show them the alphabet and then they can decode it themselves. That's what he does in this article. It's very well done. And he says, if you can pick those three images out, you can play along with me. And what they do is they work through it and they basically just say, I'm sorry. I don't see it, but let me, if I can, let me read their final conclusion and show you why it's still up in the air. Listen to this. Sure. In conclusion, this is uh, uh, Burlingame and Rochelle. In conclusion, we find no solid evidence for the X, the Toph, the triangle, the Dalit, or the dot, the word divider. Accordingly, while the reading Beit David is not impossible, did you hear that? Not impossible. Right. Uh, it remains purely hypothetical. 
We may well be wrong, of course, not, uh, but while we are sorry not to agree with Lemaire and Delorme's fascinating proposal, we prefer to err on the side of caution. Right. So, so they're saying, you know, Neil, maybe those guys are right. We don't see it. It's an excellent article, and I think it's fun for people to get into this field and, and actually entertain the question of, could it be? Whether it supports a reading of the House of David, though, Neil, in my view, this is one of the most fascinating discoveries of all time. Again, I go through a lot. I read dozens of contemporary reports from the 19th century when it was discovered to retell the story in my book, The Moses Scroll, because it is, to this day, like one of the greatest correspondences to the biblical text. But it's fun to get into this. Now, here's, here's one other thing that I'd like to say. Klein, year, a year or so after Gano had published his transcription and all with the square bottom and, and redone it, Klein is beside himself because he's the only Westerner who ever saw it before it was blown up by the Bedouin. And he published an article in uh, March of 1870 the 23rd of March, 1870, and he set the record straight. He says, Gano is confused. He never saw it. He said it should be rounded on both ends, and he kind of set the point straight, having seen it. And the other thing he said, and this, this is where I'll wrap up what I, what I have to say about this. He said, most assuredly, a scientific expedition to Moab is a great desideratum and could not but greatly enrich our knowledge of Hebrew archaeology. So the reason, Neil, that I'm in love with the land of Moab, the reason that I'm going there every chance I get, I'm going in caves, I'm looking because it's been forsaken. It, it has been left out of the equation. So many people go on a Holy Land tour. They want to go to Israel. I do too, but they, they don't walk through the border to the land of Moab. If you think about it, Neil, how much of the Bible is traced to that land? I don't know. The greatest monarchy of all time, the House of David, traces its origin there. If you're a, if you're a king in David's line, the blood of Moab runs through your veins. You got to check out the poem on my website that I wrote. It's set to music. It's it's uh, it's you, you got to check it out. But the blood of Moab runs through every Hebrew monarch's vein. Moab, the land where Moses died and was buried. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a fascinating story. And I'm still doing research there. And I'm currently working on another book uh, about Moab. There's the Tel Dan inscription. I see. Yeah, and I, I think it's very interesting. So you have this. The, the the letters look like you know the the bet uh you know tav yep, yep. Dalit, and then you got the vowel of vav and then yep. dalit again so yeah it looks like house of david which would look like house of daudu like we said in the arabic says that's what it looks like in arabic or whatever just just looking at the words just like transliterating it that's what you yep. would do. which now would let me leave that up leave that up neil because 
highlight the the BTDWD on there again. So notice in, I know you know this, but for the viewers, anything in brackets, what the what the author or the proposer of a reader it, reading is suggesting is whatever is in brackets is not visible to right. the eye. It's it's uh, proposed. In other words, the person looking at it says, I think I see this particular letter in that case, the first letter of David. Yeah. And uh, not, and to and so all the uh, skeptics out there who are like, come on. I'll give you something for your side. Israel Finkelstein, legend, by the way, I think he's a yep. great, great scholar. He came along and he uh, shut this party. Well, I wouldn't say shut the party down, but he, uh, you know, threw up a three pointer for the other team. And it says that he thinks this says Balak. He thinks it's a bit a, a bet, not a Dalit. Yeah. So that changes some stuff. But that so we have it's possible both ways, I think. Yeah, I don't think Israel Finkelstein, who I who I respect greatly, I don't think he has the last word on this. No, I I think he certainly is one of those that has a word for sure. Yeah. But you know, the reason that I so love academic discourse is that you know you really you really do entertain the different options here. You know, you have people. Uh, one side, uh, one side will come forward and bring forward an argument, and the other side argues the other way i mean that's what but you, you do but you know what's interesting about Balak? if even if it was Balak, we're still that's still a biblical character yeah we're still talking about a character who's the king of the moabs who is the one that balaam goes and speaks to yep so now, that's interesting that, that that's a whole nother interesting story right there to unfold even it if that really was is it really is and and you know you, when you talk about you look at like stories like uh, Balak, Balak, you look at that, you, you, you find that in the book of Numbers. Uh, this Tel Dan inscription would be later, but here's the key. So some academics believe that later writers would take events and personalities of their time and put them back in time. All right. So what do I mean by that? I'll give you an example. Again, in Moab, at a place called uh, Der Allah, there was uh, there were inscriptions found on the wall of a building dating back early. I'm talking at least Iron Age, and in red letters. By the way, I always when I taught on this before, I talk about the red lettered edition on the wall at uh, Der Allah. There's mention of a Balaam, a prophet who sees visions from God. Well, we know a Balaam from the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 24. Well, it's very similarly, if Finkelstein is right about the reading of the Tel Dan inscription, there you have Balak dating probably to, uh, you know, maybe the same time as the inscriptions at Deir Allah. And, you know, so you have these figures from right. east of the Jordan. It's still, it's still, it's still a biblical story being being validated even if it's not yeah. and, and the, the very least here let's say let's say Finkelstein's 100 correct you still have a, a yahweh inscription there you still have that you still have a israel or yeah israel so you still have the northern kingdom being mentioned people that worship yahweh 
And then you still have a, another biblical king, Balak, being mentioned. So yeah. even, even Finkelstein coming through as a skeptic, as a rationalist, as a critical analyst of this stuff, even he's like, yeah, you're, here we go. The Bible's starting to be mentioned in the ninth century. I, you know, this is what I love. I know you, you and I, we, we've spent time together in the promised land, in the holy land. And, you know, the, the thing that really thrills me, what I love to do, because I'm not a fundamentalist, as you know, but at the same time, give the book credit where credit is due. I agree. So, so if you go, look, I have friends that are skeptical as all get out and they say, oh, you're a nut. And I say, well, okay. Well, explain this to riddle me this. You tell me how an archaeological discovery dated to the ninth century by the majority of scholars, you tell me how it tells a story very similar to the Hebrew Bible, 2 Kings chapter 3. It's got the same characters. Oh, by the way, remember when I, we read the text in 2 Kings 3 where Israel's kicking their tail, they're kicking their tail, and then it says great wrath came on Israel and they went home. It sounds, I said, it sounds to me like they got beat. Well, the Meshastella doesn't mention that he killed his own son on a wall, but it says we beat Israel back and sent them home. I mean, what are the chances, Neil? I mean, these two accounts are very, very close and and i just think it's remarkable it is I, again, I i think i think if you're a skeptic and you have for whatever reason maybe you had a bad experience at a bad church and you're just you, you just want you're you're a, you're you're in opposition for 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 good reasons maybe people have their reasons for things i think the best way to approach this is to at least have the um have that open mind to there has, there is probably a historical layer to these texts. They're not just all completely made up from from a bunch of liars that are trying to control everybody. Like, let's not let's not jump to that conclusion. And and the reason why and you get people who who have that. Oh yeah, it's all made up by a bunch of liars, murderers, and rapists, and the worst people in the world. It's like no, these are regular human beings who have beliefs and who have traditions and they're they're passing down these sacred myths and there's historical kernel truths to these stories hey you know? yeah neil i mean we've talked about that i think what i the way i approach it is i want to test the text with every way that i can so i want to look at the linguistic characteristics i want to look at the land the language and the literature so when I go, like if it says, if a biblical account records a, a war that took place between this people and this people, I want to say, well, did those people exist at that time? If they didn't, eh, it's, been, it's embellished. But if they, did, if they did, then what do we know? Can we validate or disprove a story based on what we know historically? And, right. you know, that's what... The, you know, a person can have bad experiences with religion or with biblical faith. And I get that, but that doesn't make them someone who has to drop their integrity at the door. I would say, give it a chance. If, if it tests out, I mean, think about it. I tell people, look at second Kings three and the Mesha Stella. You know what? I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I mean, 
You got two different accounts. Again, I go back to the way we started. If two people fight, you're going to tell the story to your benefit. I scuffed him up. I won. I beat him, you know, whatever. And the other person's going to say, well, you know, I, I got the best of him. You're like, my goodness, man. You, look you know, it's a great cool. example of that. The Hittites and the Egyptians, they went to war in the uh, Plain Valley of, uh, what is it? Um, Harmageddo. Yep. And they both have, we have records from both sides saying yep. the Hittites are like, we won. We, yep. we crushed them. And then the Egyptians were like, well, we didn't crush them, but we did okay. We didn't lose. Yeah. yeah. So like, all right. I think the Hittites might have had the edge here because they're both. Uh, but like, I don't know if it was a major win for the Hittites because after this war was over, it, it uh, seems to be that um, Egypt was still controlling that land. Yeah. So it's like and then you, 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 you're piecing together all the evidence and you're like, all right, here's where the truth is. It lies kind of in the middle. Yeah. And, and again, if, if some of your viewers are, are very fundamentalist in your view, that, that's fine. But what you can take away from this, this is something for everyone, basically, because a fundamentalist person who really believes the biblical text, guess what? We gave you in this discussion a piece of archaeological evidence unlike anything else. Anything, I, in my arguably, this is the most important discovery for validating uh, a biblical text in that sense. And and if someone says, "Well, I'm kind of skeptical," well, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to say, "Is are you telling me that nothing in the biblical text reflects historicity?" Come on, man, that's not right. fair. That's a little extreme. You, know, I agree. you have to, you have to. I think that, and you have a wonderful audience. You know, your audience is some that can balance between sure. what they know from history versus, you know, and that that's what I try to bring out in my weekly classes, in my podcast, in my books. I want to bring a balanced view to the table. You know, I mean, look, it doesn't do me any good to I don't I don't have a dog in the hunt, as we say, about presenting something false. I'm fascinated with the historical truth that I want to find what is the truth. You know, and, and people might say, oh, well, that's kind of what does that really mean? Well, I mean, what can we validate from archaeological surveys and so forth? It's what drives me is I want to find that element of validity in, in some of these histories. So. Absolutely. I love it. And. um, And yeah, hey, we have to go back, man. We need to go to Egypt together. You can show let's me talk, around. Let's we'll talk. Let's get and I'll show you around. Derek was talking about how he wants to set up a a trip to get my audience that wants to pay and come 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 along with us yours and Derek's we can get yeah. a whole bus. Yeah, we're talking. And we can do package deals and we could try to figure out if we can get like 22 people on this bus and it'll cost a certain amount of money and we can all have a, a lifetime of a, our lifetime. Oh man, I'm telling you. I really really I'll never forget that trip. It was amazing. It, it really was, and and we're gonna do it again. I don't know exactly when we'll pull it together, but when we do, the two of us are gonna be there. And yeah. imagine, I, I'm sure that some and of your Egypt audience too. We got to do Egypt too. That oh yeah, no doubt, no you, doubt. Sakara, I'm not gonna tell. Uh, I can't say how. I can't even express in words how Sakara was amazing. The stuff hey, I there. I went down into this tunnel for like a mile. I'm like, I'm like, where are we go? We're underground. Like what is going huge opening up down there. 
and then like there there's giant bricks and i'm like whoa this is this is more like 2500 bce are you kidding me hey were you when you went did you take uh because i'm going in i'm going this fall to knock tours we're bringing a group to egypt jordan israel like i mentioned but we're doing a three-day, uh, three-night Nile cruise where you go down the Nile and you stop. Did you guys do that, or did you do it a different way? Uh, they, they, the people that I went, I went there for three days. Yeah, I know you had the filming I, project. The person I went there with jumped on that, exactly what you said. They went on to the, okay. the Nile okay. boat. I was gone after that. I, had, I went, you know, I had, yeah. I was kind of doing, I was just kind of jumping around, like doing my own thing. That's cool. Yeah. Hatching, hatching along with people that were doing, you know, I was, I was, it was fun. I was by myself for a whole day actually with, with just a guide, an Arabic guide. And yeah. me and him went to Saqqara alone. And that was the best day probably. I tell you what, man, it is. Most, uh, most it's people amazing. probably would have said, don't do that. That's probably a bad idea. Don't go alone. I did it. I just did. It. I just was like, fuck it. Hey, no, I, I think, you know, the, I, and I don't regret it. It was, it was amazing. I encourage people to travel. A lot of people are fearful about travel, but, no. You know, people, uh, I love people. People in the world are people. I have friends that are Christians, Jews, Muslims. Good people over there, for sure. Absolutely. You know, we, and in fact, on one of a recent tour, I'll just say quickly, someone left a bag and they, they were very concerned. They'd never traveled before. And they said, I don't know, was that area a good area? I said, listen, this area is full of Christians, Muslims, and Jews, all of which who claim to believe in God and believe that stealing is wrong. Right. If you're going to lose your bag, this is the one place you ought to be good. And, you know, sure enough, we went back and someone had taken it to the desk. And so I, I think now, that's, and that's such a good point is like we have we have some customs here that are very progressive and good. We treat people equally. And the, and well, it might not be exactly like that over there, but they do have customs that we don't necessarily follow. Like you right. mentioned, you might drop something on the ground. Someone's going to hand it to you. That's right. Like you don't you don't have gangs and, and criminals and murders happening over there. It's not like that. It's very it's it's very surprising to see. It's a different world, but like they're they have their strengths too that That's we don't. Right. Have, you know. Well, you know, one thing we have to do just one more time before we have to go is uh, we have to go to the land of Moab. Oh, and one other thing: if you ever decide to have me back. There's another thing that ends up, according to an ancient text, ends up in the land of Moab. You ready? Yeah. The Ark of the Covenant, according to at least one tradition, the tent, uh, the scroll. You know, that's what my book's about is discovering a scroll that Moses that's, wrote that's in another, the land of Moab. That's another thing. The Ark of the Covenant, everyone wants to say it's fake, it's not real, it's mythology. But then what is it based? It's got to be based on something. Let me tell you, let me leave your, your viewers with this. Think about this. Uh, I learned this from our friend, Dr. Tabor, by the way, years ago. Have you ever heard of the other Ark of the Covenant, Neil? Is it the no, one that's wait. mentioned in Maccabees? Listen, no, well, okay. So Maccabees, so, Maccabees, they're like, we still have it. In yeah. fact, not only do we still have it, we're, we're, we're going to go bury it in Mount Sinai, and that's going to be the well, end of it. Here, here's the story. This is the thing that we leave them with is this. According to the Pentateuch, not Deuteronomy, but the other books, if you look at Exodus and, and uh, the book of, uh, not, not so much Leviticus is mentioned, but mainly in Exodus, we have the story of two artisans by the name of 
Betzalel and Aholiab, and they make the ark that everyone sees in the movies, you know, got beautiful Kerevim, cherubim on the top, and so forth. Okay, that's one ark. Uh, and they, and it's made by Betzalel and Aholiab. Well, Deuteronomy doesn't know about that ark, Neil. In Deuteronomy, it mentions a different ark, the ark that Moses made. And it's a simple box. Moses makes it, not Betzalel and Aholiab. And, and in that account, I think that is uh, a different ark. And it's something maybe we could do another show whenever you're listening. I mean, your viewers may watch and say, yeah, let's talk about that. We could talk about the Ark of the Covenant and go into all the different legends. Let's Where did it go? Up. Let's set this up for whenever, next week, if you want. I don't care. Well, I, yeah, maybe as soon as we can. If people yeah, want whenever, to whenever you want to come back, and because I, I think that would be a fun topic. Let's get critical okay. and let's give it let's give it a fair shake. Let's do sure. both. Sure. Yeah. I love it. That that's, what I, that's what I'm trying to bring here in this channel trying to bring give it a, let's give these let's give this stuff a fair shake but let's also have that critical analytical mind too that's right be you fair know. man be fair have integrity you know if if you know i noticed i noticed there are a lot of people who it almost seems like they they jump into it like this arguing for one side yeah why what who cares like why even why even why even have any like have any dog in the fight Let's let us let us see where the data lands. Let's just find like it just seems like you get a lot of people on both sides, atheists or theists, and they're already trying to put the pieces together in the way they want it to be to make an argument to make it sound like, like they're they're already doing that before even they have their hypothesis and that yeah. becomes an axiom and then the truth has to has to wiggle on that axiom somehow. Yeah, people people want to they want to declare this is the truth and make every data point match their truth. Right. The the unique thing that you're doing with your uh, audience and what I'm trying to do on my channel is I'm trying to say, here's what the evidence suggests. Let's look at this. Let's go to these places. Let's you know, I mean, right now, uh, as we do this interview, my son is working on some things for an upcoming series that's going to come out in June. I'll be sure and let you know, but it I, it's going to be another biblical figure and we're not going to tell who yet but it's going to be this kind of thing what do we know from archaeology what do we know from the text and and that's what i think you have to do you're doing it every week you know let the evidence speak let let the sand tell us the truth i it's, love it got you got to go back to the dirt man you let can't the sand tell us the truth i love that i got to use that that's it hey man look until we meet again Maybe next time we will do the arc or whatever. I mean, tell people in the comments they can they can tell us what they want us to hear us talk about. Look, if it's in between these covers, let's do it. I'm game, baby. All right. Well, once again, the links are in the description. RossKNichols.com. You can get the Moses Scroll there, which is an amazing book. And you have a YouTube channel showing that on the screen right now. That's for free. You don't got to pay for that one. And that's gonna you're gonna get all the good content there. I love I watch this channel all the time. I'm always watching your videos and your lives. You know, Tabor's on there a lot, Derek's on there, me. So check that channel out, subscribe, hit the bell, and you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The demiurge has no power over you. Jesus.